You all can have a seat. My name is Blake Jennings. I'm the teaching pastor over at the Southwood campus. Matt and Brian and I will be rotating the next couple weeks. So I get to be with you today and we're going to read the Beatitudes together. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'm curious, the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago, how many of you were pulling for the Falcons to be the Patriots? Okay, not, not quite as many as my Facebook and Twitter feeds. It was like almost everyone. It actually, for about three hours, it felt like the country was united again around our shared hatred for the New England Patriots. Everyone seemed to want the Falcons to win, and it seemed like they were until the very end. Actually, there were anti-Tom Brady memes going around the internet in the third quarter because it seemed like the Falcons had it in the bag, and that was completely wrong. They blew it. The Patriots came back. It was arguably one of the greatest Super Bowls ever because of that amazing reversal right at the end. Winners became losers. Losers became winners. It was stunning. Well, well that, that shock that you felt during the Super Bowl, that is actually exactly the emotion that Jesus wants you to feel in this passage, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. For many of us, we have read the Beatitudes countless times or heard them countless times over the course of our lives. And so they just kind of wash over us and we don't even hear them anymore. We don't think about them at all. But when Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago, they were not familiar. They were actually radical words. They were revolutionary words. His audience would have been absolutely shocked to hear what Jesus says in these verses. So my goal this morning is to help you recover some of that sense of shock and awe that Jesus designed into the Beatitudes. So let's read them together. Look with me starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first thing that we have to do is define that word that gets repeated over and over again throughout the Beatitudes, blessed. That word is so overused today. It's like its own obnoxious hashtag now. So you go to the beach, blessed. You get a new handbag, blessed. You get a walk from class, blessed. Everybody's blessed. It's really annoying to me. And so I was was actually kind of frustrated when a couple weeks ago I studied this passage and realized that's actually exactly what the word means. That's exactly what's going on in the Greek. It's the word makarios, and it means very simply that you have a reason to be happy or to celebrate. It's actually not an overtly spiritual term. There was a different word in Greek for God's blessings in your life. This was a a secular term that people used all the time. It just meant that you had some reason to be happy or to celebrate. It meant that you had enviable circumstances in your life. People looked at you and wanted your life because you were living the good life. In fact, this term and a list like this, we we call this the Beatitudes, that's not just a spiritual thing. Authors in the ancient world wrote these kind of lists all the time. 
they use this common formula. Blessed or happy is he who blank. So there's nothing shocking about the fact that Jesus lists off a bunch of people who have reason to be happy. Lots of ancient authors and speakers did that. The shocking thing is when you compare the kind of people that Jesus says are blessed with the kind of people that the world said were blessed and all of those lists outside of the Bible. Who do you think the people were who those authors said had reason to be happy? It was always the wealthy, the healthy, the successful, the powerful, the popular the self-righteous, the intelligent. In other words, it was exactly the opposite kind of people that Jesus says have reason to be happy. And that's the, that's the shocking part about the list. Not that Jesus calls a group of people blessed, but the kind of people he says have reason to celebrate. It's exactly the opposite of the kind of people that our world would say have reason to celebrate. So let's jump into this list. We're going to unpack these eight lines to to study and better understand the characteristics of the kind of person who has reason to be happy according to Jesus. So the first characteristic of the blessed person is the person who is poor in spirit. And we talked about that phrase a couple weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount. The person who is poor in spirit is basically exactly the opposite of the Pharisee. Pharisee's not poor in spirit. The Pharisee, remember, is self-righteous. The Pharisee believes that he has earned his way into God's kingdom. He thinks eternal life is something that he's worked for and he's earned it because he's lived such a good and upstanding life. And Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount full of all kinds of bad news to prove no, no one earns their way in. No one is self-righteous. Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount, is calling all of us to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that you recognize your need for a Savior. You fall down before Jesus and say, I need you to save me. I am not self-righteous. To be poor in spirit is to agree with the words of G.K. Chesterton. The problem with the universe is me. The problem with the universe is not out there in other people. The problem with the universe is inside me, the sin and the evil that live in me. I need to be delivered from the sin in my own heart. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus taught a sermon very similar to the Sermon on the Mount recorded in the book of Luke, chapter 6 wasn't on a mountain, it was in a field. We call it the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus says a lot of identical things, but often he'll take something that he says in the Sermon on the Mount and he'll present it in a different way, including some of the Beatitudes. So here is the matching Beatitude from Luke 6. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Notice it's not poor in spirit, It's, it's just poor, like the literal poor. People who do not have money to afford food. Jesus says, you are blessed. Now, what is it that unites the poor in spirit with the literal poor? Absolute desperate dependence upon God. See, in the ancient world, there was no social safety net, no welfare, no Medicaid, no food stamps, nothing to support the poor. The poor were literally dependent upon God to live another 24 hours. And so what Jesus is saying is that the person who is absolutely dependent on God, either for spiritual or physical reasons, has reason to celebrate, is blessed. Why? Because that's the kind of person to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
In other words, if you want to get into God's kingdom, if you want to have eternal life with God, what must you do? You must be poor before God. You must humble yourself before God. You must lay aside your self-righteousness and say, God, I need you to save me. The problem with the universe is me. I need salvation. And that is the thing that makes Christianity so different than every other religion. I don't know if you've thought about that difference. Every other religion gives you a way to earn your way into God's family. You, You keep a list of rules. You do all these good things. You attend all these ceremonies. You do all of these sacrifices. You do stuff so that God will accept you. Christianity says you can do nothing to get God to accept you. Instead, you must receive acceptance as a free gift. You must receive eternal life. You must receive membership in the family of God as a free gift. Jesus earned it for you. He was your righteousness. He died in your place and then he rose from the dead so that you can have eternal life. You get the kingdom of heaven for free. That's a really good news. You don't work your way into the kingdom of heaven. God gives it to you for free. All you have to say is, please, please, God, I need salvation. I I need eternal life. I can't earn it. So the poor in spirit have reason to celebrate. They have reason to be happy because that is the person to whom God gives eternal life as a free gift. Second group of people who Jesus says has reason to celebrate are those who mourn. Mourning, that's a pretty, pretty obvious idea. It means to weep or to grieve. But what are they grieving over? Well, the commentaries are actually split. Some commentators say, well, they're... They're grieving over the first beatitude, that they are sinful and that they need a savior. Or, or some commentators say, no, they're, they're grieving over the normal things in life like um, sickness and death and things of that nature. Um, I actually, I think it's both. My wife laughs at me often because I think whenever there's a controversy in scripture, it's probably both. Probably you need to grab hold of both of them. And I think that's the case. It's both. I think Jesus is talking about anyone who is grieving for any reason, whether it's a spiritual reason or a physical reason or a financial reason or a health reason. When you are grieving, you are, what are you doing? You are grieving over the brokenness of life. You are recognizing that this life is not as it should be, and that makes you sad. So you're recognizing that sin should not exist, but it does, and so you grieve over the sin you see in your own life. You're recognizing that death should not exist, but it does, and so you grieve when a loved one dies. You're recognizing that sickness should not exist, but it does, and so you grieve when you get bad news from the doctor. Jesus is talking to any of us who grieve for any reason. We are blessed. We have reason to be happy. Why? Because we will be comforted. And I think that's pointing to the return of Jesus. When he comes back to earth, which could be 30 seconds from now or 30,000 years from now, when he comes back, he is going to comfort us by making everything right. He will fix all that is broken both the the physical things and the spiritual things. And when he fixes all of those things, all of us who mourned, we will celebrate. We will be rejoicing. Those who did not mourn the brokenness of this world will not be celebrating. They won't have reason to be happy. Why? Well, because they were the Pharisees. 
Pharisees don't mourn over the brokenness of this life because it's not broken to them. Things are going great to a Pharisee. And when Jesus comes back, it never goes well for Pharisees, whether ancient or modern. So when you grieve the brokenness that you see in life, take heart, celebrate the fact that that grieving in you is proof that you have recognized that this life is not as it should be and you have hope because it will be fixed and when it does, you will be celebrating. So that's the second group of people whom Jesus says has reason to be happy to celebrate. Third group, the gentle. This is an unbelievably misunderstood word. I do not like that translation at all. The gentle, it completely confuses it. You read gentle and you think of the opposite of strength. Here's the deal. When you see the word gentle in your Bible, it is not the opposite of strength because who is the most gentle man who ever lived? Jesus, and he's God. He has infinite strength, and that strength was often extremely aggressive. Think of when Jesus walks into the temple and sees people profiting off of religion. What does he do? He makes his own whip and beats them with it. That's not weakness. That's incredible strength. And so gentleness is strength expressed towards other people. That's the biblical idea of gentleness. You use your strength for others. So I define it this way. To be gentle means that you're not caught up with your self-importance. You're humble. You're throwing your weight around for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of yourself. In other words, the gentle person is basically the opposite of every person you read about in the news today. Because the people that our world celebrates and knows about are those who throw their weight around for their own reputation, their own name, their fame, their celebrity. And so the world follows them. The kind of person who has 10 million followers on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, that is not the gentle. That's the person who has put the promotion and protection of their name, their brand, their reputation, their power, their influence above everything else. The gentle person is a person you probably will never know because they are so busy taking care of other people that they don't have time to glorify themselves. But Jesus says it is the humble, it is the gentle who have reason to celebrate. Why? Because it says when Jesus returns, the gentle won't just get heaven, they'll get the earth as well. So this world today, it belongs to all the people with the famous last names. It won't for long. When Jesus comes back, he will take the world away from them and give it to all the people you don't know. You don't know them because they have been so busy lifting up other people that they never had time to lift themselves up. Jesus says the gentle person, the humble person, the person throwing their weight around on the benef- for the benefit of others, that's the person who has reason to be happy because Jesus is coming soon, and when he does, he's taking the world from the famous and giving it to them. So that's the third group of people who have reason to be happy. Fourth group, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the same idea as the first beatitude, the poor in spirit. The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the reason they are hungering and thirsting is because they recognize they do not have righteousness of their own. So again, this is the opposite of the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't hunger for righteousness because they had already filled their bellies with all of their counterfeit self-righteousness. So they didn't feel hungry for God to provide anymore. Jesus is saying, blessed is the person who realized their self-righteousness won't get them anywhere, who is just desperate for God to provide his righteousness in their lives. 
It's interesting. This is another example where Jesus takes this really spiritual beatitude in Matthew and he recasts it in a very physical, literal way in Luke. So Luke chapter 6, verse 21, blessed are you who hunger now for you shall be satisfied. Again, he is connecting spiritual hunger with physical hunger. When you are desperate for food, you don't know how to feed yourself. This is looking at the poor again. Not just us who are ready to go to lunch, but the people who haven't eaten in days because they have no money. Jesus is saying that's the kind of person who recognizes that God is the great provider, who is dependent upon God. You are blessed. Why? Because you will be satisfied. Again, I think this is when Jesus comes back. He is going to satisfy all who hungered. He is going to take away from all who were satisfied with their own self-righteousness. So again, that's the shocking thing about Christianity versus every other religion. Christianity says you come to God with nothing but an empty belly. You can't bring anything to God that he needs. There's nothing that you offer to God that that gives you brownie points. It doesn't work that way with God. You come with an absolutely empty belly and say, God, I need you or I'm dead. And God provides. That's what God is looking for. Dependence. So, fourth group of people who are blessed are those who hunger for God's righteousness because God will satisfy their needs. Fifth group, the merciful. Now, what does mercy mean? Titus chapter 3 gives us actually a really good working definition, verses 3 through 5. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So the first part of that passage, based on it, what do we deserve from God? We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. What does God give us instead? Kindness, love, that's mercy. God gives us good that we do not deserve. That's the idea of mercy. You're coming to the aid of someone in need, even if they don't deserve it. So what does mercy look like? Mercy is when your roommate hasn't done the dishes again, and it was his turn, and everyone knows it, and you choose to roll up your sleeves and do the dishes for him. And you do it without grumbling bitterly under your breath. You do it out of love, out of charity for him. That's mercy. Mercy is when your spouse says something mean to you in the heat of an argument and you desperately want to defend yourself. You feel wronged. You have been wronged. You know what you could say in this moment to get back and yet you hold your tongue and instead offer love to your spouse. Mercy is when someone ridicules you online, they say something mean about you, and you type out the single best Facebook comeback in the history of the human race. It is sharp, it is witty, it is funny, it is going to get a million likes and go viral and make you famous, and you're about to hit enter and instead you hit delete. Because you don't want to be part of this cycle of online vengeance. That's mercy. You're giving someone good that they don't deserve. Now that mercy is hard. It's a sacrifice. I mean, you have the right to hit enter. You have the right to defend yourself. You have the right to get back at someone who's hurt you. And yet mercy says, no, I'm going to sacrifice that right and give them good instead. So why is mercy worth this sacrifice? Well, because Jesus says, if you're merciful to people now, I will be merciful to you in the future. 
Now, what does that look like for you who are believers? All of your sins have been forgiven. You're not going to be punished for your sins. But one day, we are going to face Jesus. We'll stand before Jesus, and he will judge our lives. He will judge our works for reward and honor. If we have been faithful to Jesus in this life, if we've obeyed Jesus, then he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's the problem. I have often not obeyed Jesus. And so I know when I stand before him, there are going to be a lot of things on display that I'm not proud of. I want mercy when I stand before Jesus. The good news is Jesus says, if you want mercy on that day, be merciful on this day. Be merciful to other people in this life and Jesus will be merciful to you in the next life when he evaluates your deeds for reward and honor. Okay, so we have reason to celebrate when we're merciful. We are accruing mercy for ourselves from Jesus and the next life. Next group who has reason to celebrate, the pure in heart. This is a misunderstood phrase. A lot of people read pure in heart and they think like moral purity, like you're a, you're a holy person. It's actually not what the phrase means. We have to go back to the Old Testament to see this phrase. Psalm 24 is where it comes from. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, there's the phrase, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. You know, pure in heart is contrasted with deceit and, and falsehood. So what we learn is that pure in heart, it actually means honesty or, or living with integrity. The man or the woman who is pure in heart is the man or a woman who lives a life free of, of hypocrisy and, and manipulation. It's a person who, who says what he means, who keeps his promises, who, who admits when he does wrong or makes a mistake. So honesty brings blessing is what Jesus is saying. I think this is a good moment for us to pause and for us men to recognize we live in a culture that does not promote this. So in our culture, who is the manly man? It's a silent man who hides all of his weaknesses and shows only strength, only competence to the world. Man, that's what we want. We want to look competent to other people. And so we puff out our chest and we suck in our gut and we hide all of our weaknesses and our needs and we try to look strong to everyone else. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. If you want to see God in the next life, you have to be willing to sacrifice the illusion of invulnerability and be honest about your needs, your weaknesses, and your sins. And I think the reason that Jesus says, for they will see God, I think he's going back to the first beatitude. If you present an air of invincibility to God, you won't see God because that's what the Pharisees did. That's being a Pharisee. They puffed out their chest, they sucked in their gut, and they showed off their self-righteousness to the creator. That's a sure way to not get into his kingdom. You have to be willing to say, I need a savior. I do not have it all together. Jesus is saying, you will be blessed, men, when you are willing to be honest with God first and second with one another. When you're willing to be honest with your weaknesses and your needs and be accountable to one another, that is the way to a life of joy and blessing. So that's the, the sixth list or the sixth characteristic of someone who is blessed or has reason to celebrate. Number seven. The peacemakers. 
Now, we have to distinguish peacemaker is not a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper has power and authority to enforce peace, usually police or military. It's also not a peaceful person. A peaceful person is just someone who tries to get along with everyone else. Peacemaker is the hardest of all. Peacemaker is someone who sees a conflict between others and enters into it to try to bring reconciliation. So that's the idea. You are literally making peace. Now, we don't find a lot of peacemakers in our world because it is really hard and is actually quite a sacrifice. Because remember, it's not your fight. (laughs) These two people are two groups that are battling with one another. It is not your fight to enter into that. You are totally justified to just go watch TV and let them work it out. It's a sacrifice to say, hey, I'm going to enter into this conflict between my roommates and help them reconcile. I'm going to enter in into this marriage I see falling apart and listen to both sides and be a bridge to help pull them together. I'm going to enter into this conflict between these two groups, these two ethnic or racial groups, and try to be a bridge to pull them together. That's hard. It takes time. Conflicts are always messy and emotional and uncomfortable. No one wants to be in the middle of it. And they're risky because there's a chance that both parties are going to misunderstand your intentions and they're just going to all be mad at you. So conflict is is risky and hard. Why is it worth the sacrifice? Because Jesus says, if you're willing to be a peacemaker in this life, then you will show the world that you are a son or daughter of God. You'll be called a son or daughter of God. Now you become a son or daughter of God when you place your faith in Jesus. But the world can't see your faith. They can see when you make the sacrifice of helping others make peace. When they see that, it shows them that you follow a God who loves peace and they glorify your father. And so you are glorifying God when you help others reconcile. That's why it is beautiful when Christians get involved in things like racial reconciliation. Because you're showing the world, I'm going to enter into this conflict and I'm going to give up my time and emotional energy to help be a bridge and pull people together. Why? Because that's what God does. We are showing the world that we follow a peacemaking God. So that's why we have reason to celebrate and be happy when we are peacemakers. That's ultimately the way to the blessed life, not a beach, not a new handbag, but being a peacemaker. Eighth and final characteristic that Jesus gives for those who have reason to celebrate, those persecuted for righteousness. Now, the prepositional phrase at the end is important. For righteousness, this is not getting pulled over for doing 70 in a school zone and given a ticket. That is justice, not persecution. This is being ill-treated because of your commitment to Jesus. So this is the man or the woman who is fired because they were not willing to do something unethical their boss wanted them to do. This is the professor who is denied tenure because of her commitment to Jesus. This is the high schooler who is ridiculed because he's not willing to sleep around like everybody else. They have suffered because of their allegiance to Jesus. And yet Jesus says, you have reason to celebrate. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Now, at first that can be confusing because that's the same reward that Jesus spoke about at the very beginning for being poor in spirit. So humbling ourselves before God, we receive the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus now adding another condition? You also have to suffer for me. Well, no, the answer is found in the next couple verses. This goes beyond just entering into heaven. Verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So Jesus' point is that when we're treated badly because of our commitment to him, we earn reward when we see Jesus in heaven. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here is your reward. And people always ask me, what is the reward? And I don't know. The Bible doesn't actually list out what these rewards are we'll get from Jesus. What the Bible does tell us is that they are going to be so stunningly wonderful that all of the pain and suffering you experience in this life will be forgotten compared to the joy of that reward. It will trump everything you suffer in this life. When you receive that honor and reward from Jesus. That's why Jesus says persecution is worth it. Because you will be rewarded in the next life. To such an extent that all the pain of this life will be a forgotten memory. So those are the eight groups of people who Jesus says. Or eight characteristics that Jesus says. Lead us to to a blessed life. A life that is enviable. A life that should be celebrated. Let's pull it together. What, What exactly have we learned today? Well I think... At its core, what we've learned is that there's a great reversal coming to the planet Earth. When Jesus returns, he's going to turn everything upside down. That could be before the end of today. That could be a long time from now. But he is coming back, and he's going to turn the world upside down. And when he does, everything that's valued today will be forgotten, will be neglected. So fame, wealth, beauty, talent, intelligence, power will count for nothing when Jesus returns. All the things that this world values will be thrown away. Instead, what will count? Well, all the things that Jesus lists. Humility, dependence, mercy, gentleness. Those are the things that Jesus will value in his coming kingdom. And so what do we do with that? I want to give you two very practical applications. Two things to walk away. I've I've framed both of these as questions that you can ask yourself and think about how you are doing in, in following these two questions. So first question for you to think about as you think about this coming reversal, it's coming soon. Where are you chasing happiness? Now let's be clear. We are all chasing happiness. All of us do that. That's good to chase happiness. All of us are chasing happiness, either in the things of this world or the next world, material things or spiritual things. We're all chasing happiness. We're all seeking for fulfillment and satisfaction. The question is, are you chasing happiness in the things that this world offers? Wealth and possessions and fame and vacations and all of those kind of things. Or are you chasing happiness in the things that Jesus lists? Things like dependence and mercy and gentleness and peacemaking. Where are you chasing your happiness? Hopefully you've come to the conviction that Jesus is right and that a life of true and lasting happiness is found in in seeking and pursuing his values and the values of his coming kingdom. But you wonder, how do I do that? Because the values of this world are so tempting and I see them everywhere. How do I chase happiness in the right places? My encouragement to you, you will chase happiness in the right places if you follow the right role model. That's ultimately how we all chase happiness. We look ahead and find somebody further down the road whom we believe has arrived at happiness and we follow their example. That is why there are millions of people following Kim Kardashian and LeBron James. Because they've concluded those two have arrived at happiness. I want to get there. I want to be them. So I will follow them on the path to happiness. The problem is, according to Matthew 5, neither of them have found lasting happiness. Don't follow them. 
Instead, look around in your life and follow someone who is seeking out the values of Jesus in the Beatitudes and follow their example. So for me, my primary role models are my parents. I've been able to watch them pursue happiness in the Beatitudes for 40 years. And so I can follow their example as they pursue the right things. For me also is, is the elders of our church. I, I see great godliness in these men. Particularly, this may sound morbid, but I, I follow the elders who've died. <laughs> because since they've died, I actually got to see them chase happiness in the right places all the way up to the end of their life. So men like Dick Davison, he's, he's a personal hero of mine. He valued the things that God values, and he stuck to those godly values all the way up to the day of his death, and I got to see it all the way. And so he becomes a hero for me. I follow his example because I believe that is the path to true and lasting happiness in my life based on Matthew 5. So if you want true and lasting happiness, you got to chase it in the right places and you chase it in the right places by following the right role models. So find a good role model to follow. Second question for you to think about, do you honor the people Jesus honored? We know that this great reversal is coming soon to the planet Earth, where everything's going to be turned upside down. Because we know that, we can begin to live that great reversal now. We can honor and bless the people Jesus honored and blessed, because we know those are the kind of people that Jesus will honor when he returns. And so in particular, if you just look at the Beatitudes, who are the people that we should be honoring and blessing? Well, the poor, the desperate, the neglected, the sinners. Those are whom Jesus lifts up. Those are the people we should be lifting up and honoring and blessing. So I could give you a million possible ways that you could do that. I'll just give you four examples of ways that you can honor the kind of people Jesus honored. One example would be to honor and bless the unborn. Because there is no class of people who are more desperately dependent than those who haven't been born yet. So when you take a stand for life, when you support APO or Hope Pregnancy Center, when you get involved in foster care or adoptive care, when you do things that help preserve and protect those who are not yet born, you are doing a Christ-like thing. You are honoring someone who is desperately dependent, and that's what Jesus honors. That's what Jesus values. So that would be one practical example. Another practical example that's in the news a lot today, caring for refugees. Now, we, we can't do a whole lot to influence an executive order, so let's, let's not look at that for a moment. Let's think about refugees who, who are in our community. That is a perfect example of the kind of person Jesus honors. They are desperately dependent. They are incredibly in need. They are probably literally hungry. You can bless them, honor them, care for them, lift them up, and you are being like Jesus because that's who Jesus honors and blesses. Obviously, another third example would be to bless the poor because that's literally who Jesus blesses in Luke chapter 6. So when you care for the poor, the, the actual financially poor in our community or around the world, you are doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do because it is the poor whom Jesus honors and lifts up. They recognize their dependence. So as we honor them and bless them, we are being like Jesus. Final group is actually the last one on the list, the sinners. Um, I find it ironic that Jesus was chastised by religious people for hanging out too much with sinners. It makes me laugh. I really, really hope that the people of Grace Bible Church will be chastised by other religious people because we spend so much time with sinners. What a wonderful thing that would be. 
I love it when we get to spend time with people who are immoral and cuss a lot and listen to explicit music and do immoral things because that's exactly who Jesus came to save. And so let's be with them. Let's do life with them. Those are actually some of my favorite people to spend time with. Incredibly immoral people saying incredibly horrible things. I love to be with them because every time I'm with them, I think, I wonder if this is what it was like when Jesus went to that party at Matthew's house with the tax collectors. You got to know that was a rager. Those people were not religious and they had crazy money. They had to be doing crazy stuff. And yet Jesus says, that's where I want to be at the raging immoral party because those are the people who recognize they need a savior. So when we spend time with the sinful people of the world, the immoral people of the world, the world people who cuss and listen to explicit music, when we take Jesus to them and love them like Jesus did, then we are honoring the kind of people that Jesus honored. So I would encourage you this week, think about these things, the role models you're following in life and the people you are honoring in life, and pray that Jesus would help you to live out the Beatitudes. The more that you live out these Beatitudes in your life and in the kind of people that you honor, the happier you will be in the long run. That is the secret to a happy life, so long as we're talking about an eternally happy life. So let's pray for Jesus' help to live out his words. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you that you are sending your son soon and that he will turn this world upside down. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that in the Beatitudes you revealed this great and stunning secret to us that that the things that we see in the world today that the world calls valuable will not be valuable in the future. And the things that the world cares nothing about you care greatly about and that's what will count for eternity. And so we praise you that you have already given us this news. We know that a great reversal is coming And yet, Lord, we struggle to live in accordance with that. And so we pray for your help. Particularly, Lord, we pray for each person in this room. Help each of us to see a role model that we can follow. Someone who's further down the path, who has been chasing their happiness in your values, in in the Beatitudes, and help us to follow that person and, and to learn from them and to grow from their example. We pray for godly role models for our kids, that they would be able to look beyond the fame and celebrity and and money of this world and latch onto the example of people who are chasing after you, Lord. We pray, Heavenly Father, for all of us that we would learn to honor those people whom the world neglects. We pray that you would help us to take practical steps to lift up those who are desperate, those who are needy, those who are broken, those who are vulnerable, those who are sinners and immoral. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to bless them and honor them and love them and share Jesus with them and lift them up because that is who you lift up. We pray, Lord Jesus, help us to live like you did. Help us to speak like you spoke. Help us to love what you loved. We pray that you would change us to make us more like you. We thank you so much for your word and for your example. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.